This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. It is Friday, Friday, March 20th, 2020, and Caesar is home. Welcome, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Luke Thomas Show right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. How are you doing, boys and girls? Uh, I'm doing quite well. Fun show for you guys today. So who's going to be on? Well, I will tell you. We'll talk to the author of a book that I just started reading because I think it's been prescient. Um, it's called The book is called Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. The author is David Quammen. Essentially, it's a book about viruses going from uh, animals to people and then what that can cause in terms of global pandemics, which is exactly how we got to the situation that we're in. And then last but not least, we'll speak to Yale epidemiologist Kaveh Khushnud. Uh, about where he thinks all of this is headed, plus some of the mental toll that all the social distancing might take on all of us. Uh, plus, we're going to get to some Dana White comments. We'll do some breakfast cereal tournaments. Which ones are the best? For now, though, let's get into it. There was uh, Dana White, UFC president. Boy, he's just... <laughs> well, he's not reading books, which is always, apparently. He is uh, just quite mad. Quite mad at the MMA media for... Having the temerity to do its job. Um, boy, they got some nerve, huh? In any event, I guess he did an IG Live with Kamaru Usman yesterday. I don't know why Kamaru Usman's in Las Vegas or however it happened, but be that as it may, uh, he had a couple of things to say, which I thought were really funny. Um, so, uh, Cobb, correct me if I'm wrong. The wimpy quote is in the first cut. Is that right? I think that's right. I believe you're correct. All right, so let's do this. He be- look basically here's the deal. Dana White is bitter that the MMA media did its job because the MMA media doing its job does not necessarily intersect with the UFC's interests, or at least Dana White's, or some combination. Sometimes they might, in some broader ways, they do right. Like if the UFC is doing well, MMA media does well. But part of the MMA media or any media's job uh, is to tell the truth, ostensibly, and also. It's to note that if you have a sports organization acting in direct contravention to what public health officials are begging the public to recognize, you have a responsibility to say that. You're not going to make a lot of friends doing that. People are going to get mad at you, but the job is not to make friends. The job is to do the job. In any event, so Dana White, I guess, took to uh, Instagram Live and had some mean words for us. Let's hear them. Not like this. Not like this. I mean, we're not canceling anything. We're postponing. Correct, correct. Calling it postponing. So here's the reality. We will be up and running before any other sport will. We just, we have the, you know, our, our sport's different. We have the, we have the, we, we, we have our own arena next door. So we can, we, we will fulfill every fight for every fighter this year. And uh, we'll get this thing done. I think I clicked on the wrong one, but let me just address that. He says they're they are different because they have their own arena. That part is true. Obviously, that's true. They have built their own infrastructure, and that's going to be proven handy here. I also think they're going to be one of the first people and entities back there because you know what's interesting, man. The government regulation line has taken on different meanings. 
there used to be a level of government regulation. And, and by the way, that line itself has changed. But, but I mean the following. It used to be that MMA promotions or a bunch of promotions in general, um, this is, you know, the early 90s, mid-90s kind of thing. Long before Dana White and the Fertitas took over, again, I, yesterday's show, I gave them credit for being the people that really wanted to, you know, their compliance efforts with government regulations have always been pretty high. But the issue is the MMA organizations used to run from that. Now the compliance is high because they realize that's a great way to thrive. But what, what has happened is there's been a shift where what the government can mandate at the moment can be, in certain cases, pretty onerous, but it's not the same level of diligence and vigilance that is being recommended by public health officials, epidemiologists, immunologists, virologists, healthcare providers, and the following. So it's actually a lesser standard than what the government is recommending. So what ends up happening is you're saying, well, we're in compliance with the government, and for years that was actually a high standard. As it relates to this particular crisis, it's actually a lesser standard, which is where a lot of the media criticism uh, has come from. And he, Dana White goes on to talk about how much better medical attention is for them fighters when they're with him. Well, listen, they the media can talk as much shit as they want. They don't feed families. They don't. They, they don't take care of fucking people. They don't. They don't have people that count on them. They don't have people to support. We're doing the right thing as far as medical testing goes and everything. That's all we fucking do. That's nothing new. We were doing that shit way before the coronavirus, okay? Absolutely. We were taking care of people and making sure that everybody's healthy. And every fighter that's with me on the road is getting much better medical attention than they are at home if they're with me. You know what I mean? I can get, I, and, and listen, and you, you, I'm sure Ali told you too. I told our whole roster, if you or your loved ones have any type of situations or anything wrong, call me. Yeah, I mean, this is a really silly argument. Very, very silly. Uh, should not be taken seriously by anybody. First of all, they don't have, who, do, who depends on them? Well, they all have families, number one. Number two, it's not an apples to apples comparison, right? Uh, the, the issue is, uh, I could make the same argument about any medium to low level staffer in the organization at UFC at... USADA at any organization. That's the level which these individual media members are typically at. Dana should be compared to what other entities are doing who are either leaders of teams, owners of teams, commissioners of leagues, and to see what they're doing to keep their people safe, to what, see what kind of leadership they're doing um, relative to this public health crisis. Right? So sort of saying these individual media members don't own sports organizations will write. So let's compare the one that does to all the other ones that do and see what responsibility they have taken upon themselves and what the difference in behavior is. And at that point, the argument completely falls apart. If you compare him to what any professional sports team or commissioner, which again, he's not the same as a commissioner, but to the extent you want to even go that far, it, it, the UFC is woefully behind, not in general. He's right about what the efforts are they've taken towards weight cutting and everything else. That, that part is very quite true. But as it relates to COVID-19, they're not on par. It's not my opinion. It's a fact. Um, they put on an event without any testing after all the other organizations stopped. I mean, you can get mad at that. You can like that fact or you can hate that fact, but it's a fact. It's a fact. So first of all, yes, media members do have families that depend on them, quite obviously. Uh, and then the individual media member who works for a media organization 
should be compared to the same level in the organizational depth chart to everyone else in every other organization. And the people who lead those organizations should then be compared to the people who lead other ones, particularly in the sports realm. That's the meaningful comparison, not how come John Morgan and Ben Folks don't own sports orgs. And as a consequence, uh, can we demean their positions? Also, you'll note that that's not really an answer to the argument about whether or not effective COVID-19 preventions uh, in keeping with best practices relative to public health recommendations have been kept up because obviously they haven't. It's just a deflection. You know, so it's a silly argument. Now, this is the one where he gets real bitter at us. Let's hear it. Go online and look at some of these people. And this isn't a knock. This is just a fact. The weakest, wimpiest people on earth cover the biggest, baddest sport on earth. What do you expect them to say? What do you think they're going to say? And, and, and just for... These... These whips and listening to the Center for Disease Control, what do they know? You know, I have, um, I have over 350 employees who work for me. Multi-billion dollar companies are laying off all their employees right now. We haven't laid off one person at the UFC. Well, they did when Endeavor took over, but fair enough. In the current crises, they're not doing it. And that's fine. That's... That, that, that part I have no issue with. In fact, I commend the UFC for that. And every fighter that fights for me will fight three times this year. Our schedule will go on, um, and uh, everybody's going to get paid, and we will figure this out, and we will be the first sport back on, and uh, fuck that shit. <laughs> it's going to go, everything will go on. So a couple of things here. Uh, the... I don't know if this is the case, but my hunch is one reason why they haven't, um, to my knowledge, to my knowledge, I could be wrong about this, but to my knowledge, one reason they have not paid the fighters for the cards, uh, well, the Brazilian card they did, but for the London card, for the Portland card, for the Columbus card, is because they call them postponed. So my thought is, and again, this is, spec I want to be very clear about this, this is speculation. The belief that I have is that because they're postponed, uh, that means they intend on paying them once those events then take place, right? Like why pay for someone? If it's canceled, you just pay for it. But if you postponed, then that means the intention is there to put it on later. And if the intention is to put it on later, then you could pay that person for them at that time. And that sounds sort of reasonable, except it leaves a particular fighter who spent all this money up front. They now have to pay for two camps because it's probably going to be a while before they can do that. And then they're, they're short. So it actually doesn't solve the individual person's problem. Um, if, if, if in fact that's the case, but getting back to the wimpy thing, I mean, it's just a silly argument that just should not be taken seriously by anybody who has any kind of basic capacity to reason here. First of all, you got media members, several of them who fought in Iraq. Um, you've got several of them who have been collegiate athletes and you've got some, yeah, who are totally out of shape. You've got some who are incredible dorks. The reason why is because some kind of notion of toughness uh, in general, is not a helpful guide when you're hiring media members, right? Because it could be in the sense that if you had somebody who understood what the fighting was about and could do, uh, uh, has, has a bit of a background in there, you can lean on that. But for your day-to-day -day average work in covering the sport, doing interviews, developing sources, writing articles, attending uh, media days, getting cameras to work, uploading audio, taking pictures, 
it's just not especially helpful. It can be helpful in certain capacities, but if I was making a list, if I was starting a website tomorrow and I was making a list of things, uh, criteria that I would look to as a, you know, to, 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 to say how important this was, um, in hiring, that would be fairly low on the list. If someone had it, that'd be great, but I'd only need one or two of them at most. And whereas for all the other skills that go into it, it's not especially helpful. Also, kind of noteworthy, as Mike Chiapetta pointed out, you know, Dana White hired a media member to fight CM Punk, and CM Punk got smashed 30 26 across all three judges' scorecards. Uh, a lot of the media train, you know, a lot of them don't too. Here's n- none of that is the point. None of that is the point. Here is the point. The point is, it's all a distraction from the basic consideration of two overriding questions and then other ones beyond that. Did he at any point say that they tested for COVID-19 at UFC Brasilia? We know they didn't. Was there any testing planned for UFC London, UFC Portland, UFC uh, Columbus? Based on the interview that Dana White did with Aaron Bronstetter, the answer is no. Did the fighters get paid? Uh, They did not. Now, again, that could be because of the postponement versus the cancellation uh, designation. Uh, They are required to give people a certain amount of fighters each uh, fights each year contractually. Otherwise, they have to pay them outright. Um, But the point being is as follows on this one. It's just a distraction. It's just a distraction from the real issue, which is that they didn't. They, they uh, for so many things they have advanced medical protocol, especially in the MMA space, and all of that is true. But as it relates to any kind of medical protocol related to this human pandemic, they have been behind the curve relative to virtually every other sporting entity in the civilized world. There, he does not have an answer for it, uh, and in hoping that the fighters get paid, which the media has advocated for, because we don't know when the next shows are going to be. Fighters are going to have to pay twice for a camp if it's long enough, and and almost certainly that's the case at this point. Um, There is no answer to that one either. So it's all just a distraction. He's trying to bait us into getting like, no, 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 we actually are tough, which is some might be, some probably are exactly what he says they are. It's going to be a mix like any other thing, but that's not the point. The point is not to sit here and say, well, I'm going to show I'm the toughest one on earth. None of that is the issue. The issue is the questions we raised were, did the fighters get paid and were there effective medical screens related to, related to COVID-19? And the answer is no, no, that, that's it. That, that's the beginning of the story and that's the end of the story. And everything else is just a distraction. This is a very easy test to pass for everybody. Don't fall for it. All right, Luke Thomas Show. Stick around. Coming right back. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. Commercial-free music plus sports, comedy, talk, and news. They have it all. A lot of people think you need a car to enjoy SiriusXM, but you don't. You can listen outside the car. Right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for free. Just go to SiriusXM.com slash Luke Thomas. To see offer details and to subscribe, you can listen on your phone, at home, and online. That's SiriusXM.com slash Luke Thomas. Offer available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM, no car required. And joining me now on the hotline is David Quammen. He is the author of Spillover, Animal Infections, and the Next Human Pandemic, among other works. Uh, David, how are you today? 
I'm well, Luke. It's good to be with you. I hope you're well, too. I am certainly doing okay. Let's start there. Before we even get into your book, which I, uh, to tell the audience, I was looking for some reading to do on this uh, pandemic. I picked up some books of the 1918 Spanish flu, and then I saw this one. Because I think it's not, a, I would say, an underreported aspect, but certainly I have a lot of curiosity about it, which is this animal-to-human crossover, um, mm-hmm. which is primarily what the Spillover book is about. First of all, why don't you tell what the audience is in terms of Spillover, why it's a technical term, and what it essentially means in the medical community. Right. Spillover is the moment when some sort of a disease pathogen, for instance a virus, passes from a non-human animal into a human. That's the spillover. That's the beginning of an outbreak of a new disease. Uh, We call that a zoonotic disease because it comes from non-human animals. Spillover is the passage from the bat or whatever it is into the first human. So the way it's been reported, and again, I am very much flying blind here, so help me out. But the way it's been reported is that China has something called wet markets. And in these wet markets, they'll have a variety of, let's call it, exotic wildlife coming into contact with, with one another. Um, mm-hmm. So you can understand how those things might pass, but give me a keener sense of what you know about wet markets and why these may be a haven for the spillover right. effect you're discussing. Right. Well, I visited some of those wet markets when I was researching the book in southern China with one of the scientists who studies these things. Um, a wet market, uh, before this occurred, uh, a, a typical wet market might include uh, wild animals of various sorts live in cages, and that means bats, uh, possibly pangolins, which is a thing that looks like an armadillo, but not related to armadillos, civets, uh, which is a kind of a mammal that looks like a badger, bamboo rats, all sorts of wild animals, including wild birds, live in cages. These cages might be stacked one on top of another. So you might find a a bat alive in a cage stacked on top of a pangolin, stacked on top of a pig. Um, And then you might find also um, butchered meat on sale and uh, seafood on sale. The wet market where this pandemic apparently began in the city of Wuhan uh, was called the uh, Wanan wholesale seafood market, but they sold a whole lot more than seafood. These wild animals that come with their own unique viruses into this mixing bowl situation. And so how does it spread? What, an animal uh, breathes into another animal or they share confined space and then um, that that gets into the butchering and everything else in between? Right, but but an even even easier way, even more probable way, is that if you've got a a bat in a cage on top of some other animals – The feces, the urine from that bat are going to be falling down, and with the feces and the urine are likely to come viruses. So in that way, another animal can get infected. And then if the virus manages to multiply in that animal, then when that animal is butchered, say it's a pangolin or a pig, when that animal is butchered, then a number of people can be exposed to that virus. And that seems to be what happened in the, uh, the Wuhan market. This seems to have been what they call an amplifier host, an in-between animal between the tiny little bat the size of a mouse and the, the 30 or 40 people who got infected directly in that market. How cultural are these wet markets? Which is to say the Chinese and their immunologists and epidemiologists and virologists, they must know this is a breeding ground for that. And yet it sort of continues, I- I'm assuming, somewhat unabated. 
Uh, it has, right. And there are some very good scientists in China, including at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They know about coronaviruses. They know the risk. And yet these practices have continued uh, of bringing wild animals alive, not just from China, but in some cases from other parts of the world, endangered species, bringing them to China to be sold at a premium in these wet markets. It's very dangerous. It's not the only cause of pandemics, but it is it is uh, a very a blatant one. Um, and uh, some people say it's a traditional practice. Uh, it's it's uh, it's part of the ancient Chinese culture. But I have a colleague, a Chinese writer, who investigated that, did an op-ed for the New York Times, and showed from old texts that the old texts in China were saying not, oh, this is you know, eat a pangolin, eat a civet, this will make you vigorous and virile. The old texts were saying, beware of wild animals. That's not healthy. Don't do that. So it's a more recent practice. It's a vogue. It's a fashion. It's prestigious in China to eat wild animal meat. So let's circle back to some of the viral concerns here. This Again, this is such a new situation for, I think, me and many Americans. To what extent... Um, I mean, we, we, we're talking about the spillover effects. I guess I'm trying to understand how many viruses are there in proportion to the totality are simply yeah. exclusive to a certain kind of species or genus, and how many have much more universal applicability across mammals, reptiles, things like that? Right. That's a very good question. Um, we know, the scientists who study these things know that there are many unique viruses out there. Uh, we've got uh, thousands and thousands of, uh, of species of animal living in our richly diverse ecosystems, and each of those species carries its own unique viruses. Nobody knows how many. Maybe it's 10 unique viruses per species. Some of those viruses are adapted only for that particular species or for the particular group of animals. But some of those viruses have a high capacity for fast evolution. So they're always changing as they replicate themselves. And the fact that they're always changing, their genome is always making mistakes, it's mutating, and that creates possibilities for new adaptations. Those viruses are capable of passing into different kinds of hosts. For instance, from a bat into a human or from a bat to a pangolin and then into a human. Because certain viruses evolve quickly, they are at the top of the watch list, the danger list. And among those groups of viruses are coronaviruses. And the scientists have known that for decades. I knew that for, for 10 years since I researched my book, Watch Out for a Coronavirus Coming Out of a Bat in, oh, for instance, a wet market in, oh, for instance, China. Ten yeah. years ago, I was saying that. Yeah, I mean, I think your book was published in 2005, and it's about the next human pandemic from this precise spillover effect. So this is something yeah, you've had your actually, eye on. Yeah, right. Actually, 2012, but I was beginning the research in about 2006. book came out in 2012. Uh, Scientists were saying this to me, and so I said it to the readers. All right, so let's talk about this coronavirus here in just a little bit more. You talked about its adaptability. What do you know about, for example, and this was a different time, literally 100 years ago, but was the Spanish flu like that, or is that a completely different scenario? No, it's um, it's similar. Um, the Spanish flu, the influenzas are a particular group of viruses. They also have a high capacity for fast evolution. Um, the, the virus that caused the so-called Spanish flu, it, it, it didn't begin in Spain. Um, 
probably began in, began in the American Midwest. Um, but those viruses also evolve very quickly. You know, the fact that influenza viruses evolve quickly is the reason we need a new flu, vir- flu vaccine every year because the virus is always changing. It's always a new one coming out of wild animals. So that one was particularly terrible. It spread very, very um, uh, quickly and easily. And uh, people were, uh, were uh, their immune systems and their nutritional states were low after the World War I. Um, it got around on troop ships. Um, the soldiers were still together. They were just being demobilized. So it turned into this awful pandemic. Um, and killed somewhere, uh, estimates range from 20 million to 50 million or even more uh, people. It was particularly bad because it also included bacterial secondary infections, and we had no antibiotics in those days to cure those uh, bacterial infections. Now at least we have antibiotics. We have to deal with the virus for which we have no drug therapies specific to this virus at this point. But um, the, anti- the antibiotics we have can deal with the, uh, the secondary bacterial infections. When you saw this news beginning to break out of China, were you filled with, what, dread or what was your reaction? Yes, I was filled with dread. I was filled with frustration. I was filled with concern. I was filled with everything but surprise. I was not surprised at all. It was like, oh, no, here it goes just exactly what uh, the scientists have been warning about. And, and our, uh, the people who control the wheels of government have not prepared us for this. And so uh, I, I didn't know that it was going to be very bad, but I knew immediately that it could become very bad. What is the difference between uh, why this has gone so far out of control uh, versus SARS or MERS or other kinds of diseases that also started from some of these wet markets? Or, or Well, that's, that's actually that's not fair. I think SARS and MERS have unique um, uh, and different from China origins. Still, um, what is the difference between this one and those? And then also, why haven't other wet market diseases and viruses been as bad as the coronavirus is in 2020? Right. Uh, again, good question. SARS and, Mer- and MERS uh, are diseases that are both ca- caused also by coronaviruses. SARS did come out of China, southern China, 2002-2003. Somebody picked it up from, a, again, a wild animal that was sold for food. It probably was a civet, that badger-like uh, animal that I mentioned. But the, the ultimate origin was proved later to be a bat, uh, probably the same kind of bat that this thing came out of. But SARS was a different kind of coronavirus. Um, it got into Hong Kong and then into a particular hotel. I described this in the book, the Metropol Hotel. It was a man who was very sick on the ninth floor of that hotel. He coughed, he sneezed, or he vomited in the corridor or the, or the elevator. And other people on the ninth floor of that hotel got exposed, got infected. They got up, left the hotel, went to the airport, flew home from Hong Kong to Toronto, to Beijing, to Singapore, to Bangkok, taking SARS global. But SARS didn't spread as quickly and as silently as this one. It was not so severe in the sense that um, it, uh, it was not spread as much by silent characters, maybe not carriers, maybe not at all. Now we know that this virus is particularly dangerous because it spreads silently with people who don't know that they're infected. People are shedding virus before they're showing symptoms. Didn't happen with SARS. 
But SARS killed one in 10 of the people that it infected. And then because of very good scientific response and quick public health response, SARS was stopped. It was contained, partly because we were lucky. Where did it go? Toronto, Bangkok, Singapore, Beijing, places that had strong central governments, strong health care, strong influence or control over their citizens. It wasn't the Wild West in those places, and they managed to control it and stop SARS. MERS coming out of Saudi Arabia again um, is a coronavirus, doesn't spread as quickly as this one does. Are the, are the viruses that spill over, are they, they're, they're by definition more applicable, right? Because they can cross species. Are they always as virulent? Are they always as dangerous? Or can you get ones that cross that are relatively harmless, let's say? Oh, that's right. No, you can. Yeah. There are viruses crossing from animals into humans all the time, some of which seem to be infections without disease. There's one that I discuss in the book. Uh, do a little bit. of did a, some research on that. It's called – it's got a gruesome, uh, vivid name. It's called simian foamy virus. Simian foamy virus, because under a microscope, it looks sort of foamy, and it's carried by simians, by monkeys. If you go to a temple, a monkey temple in Bali, I don't know if you've ever been to Bali, but tourists go to the highlands of Bali. They go to these temples. There are these monkeys, a couple of different kinds, I think, maybe vervet monkeys, maybe macaques. I can't remember. But these monkeys carry this virus. They are the simians that carry this virus. And if you're there in a temple and you're feeding popcorn or rice to these seemingly tame monkeys. They're taking this food out of your hand. They're climbing on your shoulders. You might get infected with simian foamy virus. But so far, scientists have not found that to cause any symptoms, to cause disease in humans. Hmm. So this is happening, even when we don't uh, become aware of it through a global pandemic. What's your sense of where all of this is headed? Uh, Luke, good question. I could toss a coin and ask you to call it heads or tails. You might be right. You might be wrong. If you were lucky, you'd be right. If I said this was going to end soon or it's going to go on and kill a lot of people, given the amount of unpredictability in it, uh, I'd be doing about the same thing. It would be the call of a coin toss. Um, this there are lots of origins, lots of sources of unpredictability. Human behavior is unpredictable. Community Cooperation is unpredictable. Governmental behavior is unpredictable. And this virus, because of its evolutionary capacity, is unpredictable. So, you know, it's the old, it's the old saying, you know, you have, to, you have to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And that's what we need to be doing now. So if you could recommend to uh, various influencers, either in government, private practice, or whoever needed to hear it, maybe perhaps members of the scientific community, what are the best practices at the local level and an individual level? Wash your hands, social distancing. But these yep. seem like very much measures of last resort. What about the more robust measures that uh, nation states should be taking? Well, I'm not a public health official. Um, I read the papers and listen to uh, and watch all the news just like you do. And um, some of the people like uh, Tony Fauci, uh, 
are, are very experienced and very reliable. So they're talking about the things you're talking about in terms of individual behavior, social distancing, washing your hands, so avoiding um, spreading. Just because you're young and feel good doesn't mean you should go out to a, a bar because you may be contributing to the spread and, and cause somebody else to get infected. Uh, flattening the curve, slowing down the spread so that we flatten the curve of the number of people infected at a given time. And instead of overwhelming our medical um, facilities, we, uh, we, we pace this so that they can take care of people who need it. But on a higher level, we need preparation. We need to be ready for the next one. We need to spend money when we don't have a pandemic to be ready for a pandemic because the money spent for preparation is small potatoes compared to the money we're spending now. It seems like a lot, and that's one of the reasons it doesn't happen. Uh, policymakers and, and leaders, legislators don't like to spend um, a few billion dollars on pre preparation, preparedness against a pandemic. But, you know, the money that you spend is small potatoes compared to, for instance, shutting down Delta Airlines for four months. The money that this is costing us is huge compared to the significant money that should be spent for preparedness before the next one happens. All right. So last question on this. I really appreciate your time. Um, is this a moment of, of uh, is this a is this a moment where the Chinese really reflect on the value and necessity of these wet markets? Which is to say, I, I don't suspect that they're going to get rid of them in totality, but perhaps there might be more regulatory oversight of them. Is this a is this a coming to Jesus moment, so to speak, for them? Yes, it's got to be. It's got to be, Luke, and I think it will be. Um, there are a lot of good scientists in China working on pandemics. Um, they will be speaking to their government. Their government is going to see international pressure on them to close these markets. Uh, it's not, it, as I said, it's not the only thing that needs to be done, but it's one thing that has to be done, not to close uh, you know, food markets entirely, but to get living wild animals caught from the wild out of those markets, to shut down that trade, don't just drive it underground so it's a it's a it's a you know it's a sexy and and prestigious black market operation it has to be stopped period and only the chinese can choose to do it exercise the will to do it but the international community has to has to work with them and not uh not demonize them not ostracize them so that this is one of the things that happens the book is Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Humane, excuse me, the Next Human Pandemic. The author, of course, is David Quammen. We'll tweet out a uh, link to that on our Twitter account. And also, David, I'm in the middle of this book. I can't wait to finish it. It's been a really eye-opening uh, lesson, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Luke. Really good to talk with you. Stay well. Likewise. Take care. Cheers. This is Rick Campbell. Here, Tim Legler and myself react to the news that the NBA season has been suspended on Give and Go. You've got to put the brakes on it. Guys have to get tested, quarantined. Not talking about basketball, but talking about life and the impact of it on the great game that we love. It completely sucks. It's the only thing you can do. We really don't know ultimately when or if we're going to get basketball this season. Give and Go weekdays from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern on NBA Radio Sirius 207, XM86, and on the Sirius XM app. We are back. Luke Thomas Show, 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. All right, boys and girls, how are you doing? Let's do this now, a bit of a change up. You know what? We got to have some fun on the show time to time. And uh, usually that means firing Cobb because, you know, no one wants him around. But sometimes you got to keep him around. He joins us now via the magic of Skype. 
Cobb, how are you? Doing just fine. Still alive, so not can't complain. All right. A, a day above dirt is always a good one. Uh, so Cobb found this. Someone put, was putting together a bracket challenge. You know, it is March, and there's going to be no March Madness. But a bracket challenge uh, that was centered on breakfast cereals. Cobb, you got to stop moving, buddy, because we can hear all of that. Thank you. Um, so, breakfast cereals. And the idea is, if you had eight of the best breakfast cereals and you had them in a bracket, who would be your ultimate breakfast cereal champion? Cobb, did I get that detail right? That is correct. This was uh, tweeted to us by at Matty D MMA, so appreciate that. So uh, do you want to kick this off and get it going with the first round? Sure, sure. All right, so in our first round, we have Lucky Charms versus Wheaties. Now, I don't know how to answer that question because Wheaties and uh, and uh, Lucky Charms, they are designed to do fundamentally two different things. Wheaties is about, you know, getting you ready for the day. Maybe you throw some raisins in there. Maybe you don't. Maybe you throw some banana, some strawberries in there. But that's like your pre-morning run type food. Whereas Lucky Charms is what you eat after you hit the bong. I just don't feel like that's very fair. Well, which one is more satisfying? I think the Lucky Charms after you hit the bong is, is the more satisfying choice. What's the criteria here? I guess the criteria is whatever we want it to be. For me, I would go taste, to be perfectly honest. Like, I'm not going to just go reaching for Wheaties. Like, oh, I want to have some cereal. I don't really care about my health when I'm eating my cereal. I just want to enjoy the taste. So for me, I'd go Lucky Charms. You know what? I can't even pretend to like Wheaties. Fuck Wheaties. Let's go Lucky Charms. Although I haven't had Lucky <laughs> Charms in forever. When was the last time you had Lucky Charms? It's been a long time. Right? It's been That's a while. Not, for exactly. Sure. <laughs> That's what I was saying. I was like, dude, I haven't had that stuff in a long time. But I guarantee you, it's more recent than I've had Wheaties. So I'm going to go Lucky Charms in that, in that sense. All right. Fair enough. Uh, okay. So Lucky Charms moves on. What's next? All right. So then we got Apple Jacks versus Fruit Loops. Apple Jacks versus Fruit Loops. Apple Jacks versus Fruit Loops. Now, Apple Jack. Ooh, now that's a tough one because those are pretty similar, right? Apple Jacks are basically just one kind of Fruit Loop through the entire thing. Pretty much. Although I've heard that Fruit Loops are the exact same flavor. They just throw you off by changing the color, but it's the exact same flavor on every Fruit Loop. Okay, but that's not what my mind tells me. Yeah, I know, right? It's the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> Uh, I I didn't think you'd be this torn. The answer should be Fruit Loops, but I'm going to go Apple Jacks. I'm going Apple Jacks. I think the milk afterwards tastes better. 100% agree. And I think Fruit Loops are overrated. Apple Jacks, I've never had a problem with like. With Fruit Loops, sometimes like you can have a bowl, and you're like, I don't think I want another bowl of Fruit Loops. Apple Jacks, I feel like I always want another bowl. So I'm going to go Apple Jacks as well. All right. Very good. Some unanimity so, there. Yeah. Apple Jacks moves on. Now, this one's an interesting one. Uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch versus Golden Grams. Cinnamon Toast. Oh, that's easy. Cinnamon Toast Crunch is my number one seed. Cinnamon Toast Crunch as a kid was the only kind my mom would let me have in terms of like the you know, the cereals that are bad for you kind of thing. That was the only one she would ever relent on. I have a very... Cinnamon Toast Crunch is going to be hard for any of these to beat in my mind, so I'm going to go that one. Ooh, we've hit the uh, the child center of Luke Thomas's brain. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's a, that's a powerful. That's a powerful motivator. 
You know what? Uh, I would go Golden Grams, but I don't have the same conviction you do, and it's your show, so we'll have uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch move on. All right, we have some unanimity. Now, what happens if we disagree? We have to just debate it out? I think we can debate it out, but again, it's, I'll say whoever has – yeah, debate's fine. Whoever has the most uh, impassioned argument, I suppose, should win. All right, we Although have to it be is your f- show, so you might count for two. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? you got to be fair because I don't eat a lot of cereal, so I'm, I'm, I am – you can sway me on this. So here's an interesting one. I'm not big on either of these, but Honey Nut Cheerios or Raisin Bran? Honey Nut Cheerios, Raisin Bran. That is an easy, easy answer, my friend. And the answer is – now, this is Raisin Bran, yes – uh, raisin bran with raisins. Folks don't know this. It's terrible for you because it's so freaking delicious. Uh, that is an easy, easy call. Hundred percent raisin bran. Raisin bran with delicious with uh, raisins is so freaking good. I don't know how you could even argue otherwise. It's so so delicious. Now here's the thing. I would probably go honey nut Cheerios over raisin bran. But in my opinion, I find regular Cheerios to be far superior. So for that reason, I'll go with you and go with Raisin Bran. Yeah. Okay, good. We're on the same We're on the same wavelength there. All right, so that's one side of the bracket done. On the other side, we have Frosted Flakes versus Rice Krispies. Frosted Flakes. Oh, Rice Krispies are for peasants. Tony the Tiger and Frosted Flakes. That might be the best tasting milk after the fact of any cereal that's ever been made. So while I don't necessarily like Frosted Flakes as my number one go-to, especially dry, you ever like stick your hand in a dry box of Frosted Flakes? It's not that money, you know? (laughs) But but the milk afterwards is the apex predator of all post-milk cereals. Post-cereal milks. If they wanted to make this tougher for me, they would have made the Rice Krispie Treat cereal that they used to make. Do you remember that? When they were essentially just making the Rice Krispie Treat, they were dicing it up, and that was your cereal? That was a yeah. cereal? Oh, it was fantastic, and yes, it was. I never even that, heard of that. Oh, you missed out, pal. <laughs> Big time. That was a great Sounds cereal. Sounds like it. Jesus Christ. But yeah, Rice Krispies, I used to, I feel like I used to have to add something to it. Like I'd put chocolate syrup on it and make it Cocoa Krispies to make it better. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. Frosted Flakes all the way. All right. Uh, what's next? All right. So next up, Cocoa Puffs versus Frosted Mini Wheats. Frosted mini wheats turned into gross dumplings of shit when the milk got too much into them. And Cocoa Puffs were like a chocolate version of Rice Krispies. So that, to me, it's like neither of these are going to be your better sweet cereals. But if we're comparing which ones are good sweet cereals, one is clearly better than the other one, I say. Cocoa Puffs was like one of my favorite cereals when I was a kid. To me, that's not a question. It moves past Frosted Mini Wheats easily. Dusts it. Like Valentino versus uh, Cachuera. That's Cocoa Puffs right now. Yeah? Yeah. All right. Fine. I won't argue (laughs) with it. Okay. So next up, we have Honey Smacks versus Fruity Pebbles. Honey Smacks versus – oh, Fruity Pebbles. Fruity Pebbles. Uh, Fruity Pebbles, again – not the best cereal outright, but um, this is one where, number one, they're good dry. Number two, the milk afterwards is delicious. I love the coloring. It's like eating a little bowl of ice cream afterwards when the milk is all full of the, what's, the, what's left there. Um, you know, you can have a whole bunch, and it's got a nice consistency when you bite into it. What was the other one? 
Honey Smacks. Honey Smacks. Man, is that one that had the frog as yes. their stupid? Man, yes. F Honey Smacks. As Kelly would say, let the pores eat them. Yeah, That's 100%. what I say. I'm with you, dude. Fruity Pebbles I love. It's my probably my second favorite cereal and my go-to now as an adult when I buy cereal. And my friend always laughs. He goes, Fruity Pebbles is the kind of cereal you don't know you love until you have it, and then you can't stop eating it. So, yeah. Right. The Fruity you ready for this? I had a friend make Rice Krispies treats out of Fruity Pebbles. I've had that before, and it's amazing, too. It's out of control <laughs> is what it is. It's so good. Yeah. All right, so that brings us to our last matchup then. It's uh, Trix versus Captain Crunch. Now, Cobb, I'm going to let you go first on this one. I don't have a dog in this fight. I d- I've eaten both, and I like both about the same. What do you say? I do, but I'm going to give Trix the edge because at least it doesn't tear the roof of my mouth off the way Captain Crunch does when you try to eat it. It always just shreds the top of your mouth as you go. So I'm going to go Trix. I won't fight you. All right, Trix. Trix it is. All right, so now we move into the semifinal here. We have... I'm sorry. What do we have? We Lucky Charms versus uh, Apple Jacks. Lucky Charms versus Apple Jacks. Man. See, here's the thing about Lucky Charms. The marshmallows are good, but it's not that good. The cereal itself is not that good, whereas Apple Jacks by themselves are good. I know this is an upset because everyone's supposed to like marshmallow cereal. I'm going to go Apple Jacks. What do you say? I'm kind of with you on that. I know uh, I like Lucky Charms, but I think if you made me pick, like if you put them side by side, I think I'd go Apple Jacks. So I'm going to run with you on that one. I think you're right. I think it's Apple Jacks are but shockingly strong, dude. They're very good. So, yeah, I'll go Apple Jacks as well. Uh, then we go to our other quarterfinal matchup here. Uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch versus Raisin Bran. Cinnamon. Come on. Is this a debate? Yeah, I, mean, I figured that would be the easiest one. I'm Cinnamon not above Toast Raisin Bran. I like it. But against Cinnamon Toast Crunch, this is... You know, this is uh, this is Shevchenko versus Catchware right there, my my guy. For, for you, yeah. Very easy call. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Cinnamon Toast Crunch has a nice little bracket ahead of it. So uh, then we have that brings us to our other side of the bracket: uh, Frosted Flakes versus Cocoa Puffs. Frosted Flakes versus Cocoa Puffs. Now I'm going to go Frosted Flakes. I don't have the same sentimentality around Cocoa Puffs that you do. I always love Tony the Tiger. I love the marketing. I love the color of them. And again. By itself, eating the cereal, it was delicious, but it wasn't the best sweet cereal. But the milk afterwards was uncontrollably good. What do you say? I think Cocoa Puffs is just as good and has just as good milk drinking afterward because it's like almost having chocolate milk after you're done. So you got Cocoa Puffs in there too. Cocoa Puffs for me doesn't get the job done. You got to come with a better argument than that. For me... That sweetness is that that is the the cocoa puff post milk was good, but the sweetness from the frosted flakes was 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 clearly, and you know I got a sweet tooth, my guy, so <laughs> I could be reasoned with, but I didn't hear enough there. Uh, cocoa puff doesn't hit your sweet tooth that same way. I would think the cereal not the itself, sa- not, would not the same way. No, not the same way. I feel like we have kind of hit an impasse, but since I feel like you have the better debate and you seem to be a bit more strong about it than I am. I'll let it go. I'll, I'll, I'll let Frosted Flakes advance. All right. Very good. Very good. Now, where are we? Uh, our next quarterfinal matchup, Fruity Pebbles versus Trix. Are you a Fruity Pebbles guy on this one? Because I am. A hundred percent. Yeah. Trix is like if you took the Fruity Pebbles and blew them up, but there's no – and they had that stupid rabbit. Like, fuck that rabbit. Who was the <laughs> – you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Fruity I'm Pebbles had like Fred Flintstone and stuff. Yeah, it had, it had a classic cartoon show. I'm, I mean, yeah, all, all across the board, taste, the way the milk stuff, the way the milk tastes, yeah. uh, spokespeople, 100% better. Yeah, tricks. Tricks, just, tricks had the benefit of a good matchup. That's all it had. That's yeah. the only reason why it moved on. Yeah, tricks, uh, is, so br- tricks is for losers. So that brings us to our semifinal matchup, Apple Jacks versus uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Now here is when the rubber meets the road. I'm going to go Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I used yeah, to love, I love the, I love everything about the Cinnamon Toast Crunch, about the way it was like each one was a piece of toast. And then we haven't talked about it yet, but the milk for that one too afterwards was great. The little specks of cinnamon everywhere with pieces of sugar, and you would get it. It to me just one of the cla- one of the one of the cornerstones of American breakfast cereals, and great when you're high too. <laughs> uh, agreed. I'm going to go Cinnamon Toast Crunch. So our next uh, matchup. Frosted Flakes versus Fruity Pebbles. Ooh. I feel like I got to go Fruity Pebbles. Yeah, I feel like, I'm with you. I feel like I, Frosted Flakes had a nice run, Cobb. It was a Cinderella story there, but it's time to close it out to the big dogs. A hundred percent. So that brings us now, this is where the rubber meets the road. Right. Cinnamon Toast Crunch versus Fruity Pebbles in the finals. Wow, that is really, I mean, that is Godzilla versus Mothra right there, my friend. That is King Kong versus the city of New York. Wow. Um, all right, well, let's talk about it. Pour it in the bowl, and you pour it in the milk. I would, I would say the feeling of anticipation I get is higher with Fruity Pebbles. How do we feel about the milk afterwards? Milk is Fruity Pebbles for me. And then what about the actual in-process? Here's the thing. I feel like Cinnamon Toast Crunch is a more original style of there's not many people who can pull off what Cinnamon Toast Crunch has pulled off, you know? So it's got it's highly unique. I think more so, like, the thing about Fruity Pebbles is its simplicity. And Cinnamon Toast Crunch is a little bit different. All right, let's do... Um, but here's the thing. I would say Fruity Pebbles, like you said, you could make a Rice Krispie treat out of Fruity Pebbles, which you cannot do with Cinnamon Toast Crunch. It would not you know, be that's good. That's a great point. That's a great point. All right, you're Very right. Versatile. So I think, I think the breakfast cereal winner is Fruity, Fruity Pebbles, right? I think so, too. I think it's the number one cereal out there. Uh, put up a bracket or put up our results here if you can on at MMA on SiriusXM. Can you do something about that? Will do. Or our Instagram at SiriusXM Fight Nation. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. Commercial free music plus sports, comedy, talk, and news. They have it all. A lot of people think you need a car to enjoy SiriusXM, but you don't. You can listen outside the car. Right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for free. Just go to SiriusXM.com slash Luke Thomas to see offer details and to subscribe. You can listen on your phone, at home, and online. That's SiriusXM.com slash Luke Thomas. Offer available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM, no car required. And joining me now on the hotline is a professor of epidemiology, excuse me, at Yale University. It's Dr. Kaveh Khushnud. Doctor, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you doing? Doing quite well. Before we get into some of the meat and potatoes of some of the stuff you've written about this, um, let me just sort of get an overview and how an epidemiologist like you is looking at what's happening with the coronavirus worldwide and what, like, what, how are you feeling these days? What are you noticing? Where, where, what is your headspace at? Sure. So first of all, I mean, as as epidemiologists, we study epidemics and we we knew um, this will be coming. Maybe not this exact one, but we know that epidemics will continue to come. Um, 
And uh, so we were not uh, completely shocked. We didn't know the extent of it. We didn't know how contagious this was going to be. But, uh, you know, we've seen epidemics like this every couple of years. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, but frankly, what's predictable. Uh, just for the clarification for the audience's sake, can you tell me what the difference is between an epidemic and a pandemic is? Sure. So epidemic is when you see an outbreak of infectious disease, usually in a regional, you know, in, a, in one or two countries. Uh, but once it spreads beyond and becomes a worldwide epidemic, then the term that's used is pandemic. Now, there is a bit of a political uh, nature to these terminologies, and uh, the World Health Organization is the agency that gets to call uh, an epidemic a pandemic. And they're quite uh, nervous, frankly, about calling a pandemic because what they don't want is to uh, create a lot of panic and fear. Uh, but it was pretty clear from a few weeks ago that this was going to become truly a pandemic. And again, before I want to, we're having you on because I want to talk about some of the mental health implications of all of this, which I think will be significant. But just for a moment, if I may, um, I have seen other epidemiologists say, you know, this thing is basically going to be around um, 18 months, two years in one capacity Mm -hmm. or another. Do you share that sentiment? Uh, yeah, I've been I've been looking at some of that data as well. So a lot of that is based on mathematical modeling, predicting uh, based on the data that we're collecting, and also based on past experience. So it is obviously a new infection, a new disease, a new virus. So it's very hard to predict exactly where this is going to go. Um, but um, we do have some good news coming from the place where the whole thing started, in China. As you probably know, in the last few days, China has reported zero cases. And that happened in less than three months. We have seen a significant drop in number of cases in South Korea. Uh, We are seeing uh, also plateauing and going down of cases in places like Hong Kong, in Taiwan, and in Japan. So the good news is... um, Quite a few countries now have begun to control this outbreak, and we absolutely should be learning lessons. They they didn't all use the exact same approaches. They had different approaches. China's approach is often referred to as draconian. It was probably the most aggressive, the most extreme than any other country. But... um, whether we like that approach or not, they actually brought this to an epidemic to a halt. Um, so in, in less than three months, the cases dropped to zero. So that, that's sort of a good news. Um, but again, it, it really depends how we approach this and how aggressive our measures are. And I know U.S. is really in the last week and a half, two weeks, have completely switched its approach few weeks ago, it, it was really difficult to get uh, government folks to take this seriously. But I feel like the last few weeks, uh, the government is taking this far, far more seriously than it did in the past. So let's now transition to something else that I think, as far as I can tell, and obviously I have zero background in epidemiology, but based <laughs> on what I am reading, doctor, this is the sense that I get. The central tension is 
Um, look, there could be a treatment breakthrough between now and uh, at some point. Uh, I suspect uh, mm-hmm. not anytime soon, but you know, at some point there might also be a vaccine. But from now, the issue is mm-hmm. if we take these suppression methods of quarantines, social distancing, and others, we have a decent mm-hmm. chance at limiting the spread, potentially stopping it, as you had indicated, in places like China. On the other mm-hmm. hand, if you do that, you grind the economy to a halt, in which case people will lose jobs, there'll be despair, there'll be social isolation, in which case you might die from a series of other factors unrelated to the virus itself. Do you share, you, is, that, is that a characterization you think is fair? I think it's very fair. Um, you know, as an epidemiologist, frankly, our focus is on controlling epidemics, but we cannot ignore the fact that these measures that you just indicated, um, you know, shutting down schools, shutting down businesses, whatnot, has significant economic cost and livelihood of people, which takes a toll on their physical and mental health. So if governments are going to be asking people to, uh, you know, shelter at home, not go to work, etc., the governments also have an obligation to provide people access to resources, to finances, to food, access to medical treatment, etc. It, it has to be balanced. It, it, Otherwise, yeah, sorry, back. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. So I, yeah, I get that. So, so no, I'm, I'm saying um, it has to be hand in hand. You can't just say, stay home, don't go to work, don't send your kids to school and provide no resources. And some countries are frankly doing that and people are pushing back and saying, how can I survive if I have no income? So it has to be uh, a coordinated, balanced, uh, you know, an economic response and a public health response hand in hand. Are there potentially lasting consequences to, um, well, quarantining obviously, right? Like uh, shelter in place is such a aggressive method. But let's say even something like social distancing, if that goes on long enough and eventually the the lid gets lifted, uh, are people going to want to go back to being together again? And this sounds kind of silly, but a friend of mine asked me, are people going to hug again? And and that sounds that's not, well. It sounds silly, but like when you think about it, these yeah. small gestures in life they have real emotional right. affirmation. What, what is your concern there? Yeah, well, well, I I do think the cultural norm may shift, but I just want to go back to something which is, you know, um, some of the countries uh, like South Korea they didn't really go or Singapore they didn't really go the. Uh, sort of quarantine route. They went aggressive with identifying cases, isolating them, doing contact tracing, which is figuring out who were the close contacts of these cases, testing as many people as possible and isolating them. And if you could do that, you could actually contain this without the need to do quarantine. So quarantine is not... um, Quarantine are people who are at risk, people who may have been exposed to an actual case. That's what quarantine is. But if you could do a good job with identifying cases, isolating them, doing contact tracing and doing that aggressively, uh, you could sort of skip the quarantine. So um, uh, China did not do that. I mean, they started doing case identification and contact tracing, but they quickly realized some of the cases, well, they were a bit late, 
by few days, but the cases had already um, went outside Wuhan, other parts of China. So they felt like, all right, too late for us to do uh, case identification, contact tracing. We need to actually restrict people's movement, also known as quarantine. Um, South Korea didn't go that route, but they frankly had similar uh, impact. Um, U.S., uh, again, U.S. was delayed by several weeks in terms of really taking this seriously. And as you probably know, we still don't have uh, test kits that are needed to do this. Um, so we don't know how many people are infected because they have, we have not provided testing opportunities for them. So that's something that's evolving in the last few days. Many, many more people are being tested, which is good because it gives us a sense of what's the true number of infected people. And, I, you know, when you look at numbers, estimated numbers, they're all over the place from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of people who potentially have been infected. But as you know, this, this particular virus doesn't uh, create symptoms in every single case. In fact, a good number of people have very mild symptoms. So they don't really feel sick. They don't see the need to go get tested. Um, so that that's one complication and what, one of the features that's different from this than, uh, let's say, seasonal flu. When you see that the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, has essentially, uh, I mean, I don't know exactly what the, what the terminology would be for what he is requiring, except you can only go outside for essential services, gas, bank, yeah. uh, grocery stores, pharmacies, that kind of a thing. Um, what, yeah. what, what concerns you about the long-term approach to something like that? Uh, well, those ideally are short-term, uh, hopefully matter of weeks. Uh, uh, the, the term that's being used over and over now is flattening the curve of this epidemic. If uh, we allow people to continue to gather in large places, go to school, go to um, churches and whatnot, so, uh, and they continue to interact, they're going to pass the infection to one another. So the numbers are going to escalate and peak, and it's going to overwhelm the healthcare system. So the whole point of this social distancing and um, restricting people's movement is the cases are going to continue to spread, but by preventing large you know, gathering of crowds, we are going to flatten the curve, which makes it feasible for healthcare system to respond. So those kinds of measures you just mentioned in California, hopefully they will only last a few weeks, not months. Um, but again, a lot of that depends. Once the testing uh, goes up, we'll get a better sense of what do the number of infected people look like. If people are worried about uh, these kinds of conditions being placed on them, or even not for themselves, but let's say the elderly, people who don't have a lot mm -hmm. of contact normally, what can be done? What would you recommend to maintain some kind of social normalcy amid the distancing? Yeah. I mean, again, just because we say social distancing, that should not equal, equal social isolation. Please uh, make phone calls, video call, chat, especially with your elderly, with your grandparents. Um, um, there, there is, you know, make phone calls, FaceTime, use social media, so engage with one another as much as you can. You've, you've seen people in Italy, you know, coming, opening the windows to their 
apartments and, and singing songs together. Those are exactly wonderful things people should be doing. Uh, do online tutoring to children who are now no longer in school. Um, so so uh, social connection without having to meet physically is, is what we should be doing. And doing exercise at home, but also perfectly okay to go to a park and exercise, and of course, try not to you know, keep your distance from other people. Uh, don't shake hands, don't hug and kiss, but by a- absolutely, I mean, you, you brought up mental health earlier, which I'm so glad you did. It's uh, somewhat neglected in, in times of outbreak and these epidemics. It's a, it takes a huge mental uh, toll on, on people. And, and uh, you know, some people unfortunately don't know how to manage their anxiety and switch to alcohol, increase their alcohol use, cigarette use, uh, other substances. And that is certainly not going to help them. It may give them a bit of a temporary relief, but it's actually going to infect their immune system. So if they get infected, now their likelihood of them getting far more, uh, you know, seriously ill is, is going to go up. So I'm going to ask a completely unfair question here to close. Uh, Just work with me if you can a little bit. I'm going to ask it because I know my audience listening is going to be asking it in their head. So um, the answer is, how how in your mind as an expert, knowing that there is a wide range of possibilities, Mm -hmm. how does this end in your mind? When you think about the end of this, what does it look like to you and when does it happen? Yeah... um... Well, people talk about sort of the the worst case scenario and the best case scenario. The worst case scenario, frankly, is just uh, it's it's horrible. <laughs> I've seen some numbers talking about over a million Americans dying of this, and that that is horrible. And I really hope that we don't go that far. Um, if these uh, the the measures that have been put in place last couple of weeks, this social distancing uh, work. But also, if we get some treatment uh, treatments available in the next few months, which is quite possible, there's there are clinical trials happening in China, in parts of Europe, in the United States. There are a dozen or so companies, you know, working on the vaccines. Um, I think a medical treatment will become available. I'm hoping in the next few months, vaccine is going to take longer, probably a year and a half to two years. So with those tools, with public health tools, uh, social distancing, et cetera, and with some medical tools, the, the best case scenario is towards the end of summer, this is going to come down significantly, if not go away completely. And again, this is not too weird to think because China did this. China did this in three months. The cases went down to zero. That's unless we don't believe, we think they're faking the numbers, which I'd like to think they're not, um, you know, by the end of summer, we may be uh, in a very good shape where this has basically been curtailed. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Well, I've... But it does, it does require us to take the advice of public health experts seriously. And I, and I really believe this is a time for all of us to, to pay attention to what public health people who've been studying these epidemics for decades tell us. This, this is a time, and I hope politicians 
uh, allow for their public health experts to speak uh, and and sort of guide uh, the response. I, I certainly uh, am encouraged by your optimism. Uh, he is a professor of epidemiology at Yale University. It is Dr. Kaveh Khushnud. Dr. Merci, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. And we'll see how things go. Thank you. All right. Take good care. Thanks for listening. Catch The Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L. Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.